Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I am your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. I am back today with Tyler Metcalf and Jeremy Stevens to cover the second portion of our awards for the season, the All-NBA teams, all of them, the All-NBA teams themselves, the All-Rookie teams, and the All-Defensive teams. So let's get started. Tyler, how are you doing today? Doing great. Glad to be back on and excited to uh, have a little disagreement with these guys. Hopefully more than we had on the first portion of this podcast. Jeremy, how about you? (laughs) I'm doing good. I think all of these lists are a mess because this season was a mess, so I'm ready. All right. Well, let's start with, I think, literally the only portion of this that is not a complete mess, which is the first team. And all three of us agree about who the guard should be. I don't think there's really all that much argument there, to be entirely honest. We mostly agree on the forwards, and we mostly agree on the centers. So let's just start with the guards, because that's where we didn't have any disagreement. And I want to keep the vitriol to a minimum, at least for the first portion of this podcast. So James Harden, Steph Curry, pretty simple. We all had Harden as our number two candidate on the MVP ballot. Two of the three of us had Steph Curry on said MVP ballot. The guard competition outside of the two of them was solid, but I don't think anything even close enough to knock either of them out of that first team slot. Tyler, your thoughts? I thought these two were a pretty easy choice. I mean, Harden, incredible year. Curry just is one of the most influential players in the NBA. These are two of the top players in the NBA. Um, and no one, I don't think another guard even came close to challenging them for, for this first team. And just the, the gap between these these guys and everyone else is just extravagant. Yeah, there was a part where um, I said this on the last podcast, but people find this one first. There was a little bit where Curry got injured and then he came back and it like the Warriors with and without him are literally entirely different basketball teams. So that's all I got for that. In the forward section, we all agreed on Giannis, which I hope we would, seeing as we all picked him for MVP. It'd be really interesting if one of us put him on the second or third team. And then for the second forward slot, we did have a little bit of disagreement. So let's dig into that. Tyler and I both had Kevin Durant there. Jeremy, you had Paul George there. That's really, I think, the argument is just which two of those three forwards do you end up putting on the first team and which one of those guys is sort of the highlight of the second team. I ended up going with Durant over Paul George just because, as we discussed at some length on the previous podcast, Paul George really did sort of fall off towards the last month and a half or so of the season. And Kevin Durant has been consistently amazing the entire year. So, yes, Paul George, I think, clearly mattered a lot more to his team than Kevin Durant did. Paul George had an incredible breakout year. And I don't want the lasting thought of Paul George's season to be that he didn't do as well down the stretch because that does take away from the remarkable season that he did have. But I couldn't leave Kevin Durant off the first team after the season he's had. Yeah, so the, the case against George is is what you said, which is he, he tailed off a little bit at the end of the year. My case against Durant is I, there was that little bit of drama in the middle of the Warrior season where it kind of just looked like he didn't care. So when you kind of take the downsides of each player, I'm, I'm taking more points off of Durant. And even though the stats don't support my analysis of Paul George, I still do think his defense was incredible. I think we all agree that his offense was obviously amazing. So I think... The defense gives him an edge, and then I think the the reasons for their individual struggles, I think, gives me a little more sympathy for George. So 
Uh, I just I like his season more. Again, I said it on the last podcast, greater workload, incredible results. So I think just this year, he deserves first team over Durant. Tyler, why did you put Durant over Paul George for that first team slot? He's just so freaking good all the time, every year, all season long. Um, and th- that drama was irritating, but it really didn't affect the play on the court. I and mean, he's going to get you 27 points, seven rebounds, and four assists on 50, 40, 90 splits almost every night. And oh, to a point where it becomes boring, but that shouldn't make it unimpressive. Um, and he can get a shot from anywhere on the floor. He's impossible to defend. I, I I get the irritations with you know his free agency looming, but I to discount his or to to have that take away from what he's done on the floor I think is an injustice to how good he is and how good he's been all season. And I I was even thinking about him in that fifth spot on for the MVP. I I think he's been that good this year that it's almost become underrated. Two of the three of us had Nikola Jokic as our first team center. Tyler, you had Joel Embiid as your first team center. I think that's really what the debate comes down to is between the two of them for that first team slot. But Tyler, why did you have Embiid ahead of Jokic for this first team center slot? So I gave Jokic the edge in the MVP voting because of the general spirit of the award. Um, but I, I think Embiid's defense gives him an edge in in, in the All NBA discussion. He's been awesome offensively, and he's but but his rim protection and kind of defensive versatility, and just how he kind of makes the Seventy Sixers a different team. Um, I ju- just gave him the slight edge. I get the arguments for Jokic, and it was really close for me. But I, I think Embiid's overall all around game just gave him the slight edge for me jeremy your thoughts yeah i'm trying to god it's, it's such a tough choice something i see with Embiid that i that makes me critical of him is i think late in games and i should say for almost any award any discussion i put like fourth quarter close games good team versus good team game on the line kind of stuff and uh something i just see with Embiid is number one he, he just looks gassed I think his his decision making kind of evades him. He, he takes some bad shots. He gets mad at the other team. He misses defensive rotations. So, and then of course Jokic. Anytime he comes up, I just bring up that he's kind of slow and maybe not a good defender. But um, this is partially just rewarding Jokic for making the Nuggets so good. And just just little nitpicks I have with Embiid where I think he should be better. So that's probably the difference is that I maybe just don't expect Jokic to do certain things. With Embiid, you know he can do it, but he just doesn't. So again, I really think this one, of all the awards, this is probably the closest to going either way. So I can't really nitpick too badly. But yeah, Jokic, just, just by an edge. For me, it came down to an argument about defense versus impact. And what I mean by that is that Joel Embiid is one of the best center defenders in the league. Nikola Jokic is average at his best, I think, on the defensive end of the floor, would be fair to say. But what ended up tipping the scales on my end is that Nikola Jokic played 80 games this year and Joel Embiid played 64. And the impact that Nikola Jokic had over 80 games for the Nuggets was, in my mind, larger than the impact that Joel Embiid had over 64 games for the Sixers. And when they are that close, as I agree with you, Jeremy, I think this was a really, really tough call between the two of them. Ultimately, I gave the edge to Jokic because 
even though his defense is clearly worse, he just had more of an impact on the season because he was just on the court more. But let's move on now to the second team. And all three of us had Damian Lillard as one of our second team guards. But interestingly enough, our Celtics fan was not the one who had Kyrie as his second second all-NBA team guard. So Tyler, why did you have Kyrie ahead of Russell Westbrook, who both Jeremy and I put in that second slot? Yeah, I was a little worried about Jeremy that he didn't have Kyrie there. I was concerned that it was a typo where <laughs> he wasn't feeling well or something. But uh, I, I'll explain after. <laughs> just, I mean, Kyrie's been pretty obnoxious off the court this season, but and I'm assuming that that's part of the reasoning. But just he's been so freaking good when he's been on the court. His numbers are really impressive. I mean, their offense is better, and he's one of the best clutch players in the league and he's just been really efficient this year and really impressive. So I, I, I get the argument for Westbrook with his triple doubles, but Westbrook's inefficiency and just horrendous shooting this year, I, I couldn't give it to him. And I, I just think what Kyrie's been for the Celtics besides frustrating, um, his, his numbers are just too good to leave him off. All right. So two things, one really quick, I think Westbrook's defense is actually really underrated this year. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't even want to spend time on that. But I just think it's noting that his, his defense is really good this year. Uh, the the more important thing is, obviously, being the Celtics guy here, I'm far more critical of Kyrie. And there were a lot of times throughout the season where the Celtics really needed something, and he didn't he didn't have it. If we're going by just the last month, it's it's Kyrie by a landslide. But for for the middle of the season where they couldn't really figure things out, um, well, God, it's so weird because they did have a good stretch in the middle, but um, it's kind of the difference being when the when the Thunder needed to figure things out, Westbrook was kind of the catalyst to the change, and when when the Celtics were trying to figure things out, Kyrie was kind of part of the the. I'm not calling him part of the problem, but he he just like wasn't. There was no clear solution with him. If that makes sense, like when when they needed scoring, he was passing. When they needed passing, he was scoring. It, it was it was just not really gelling the way that it should. And in the past few weeks, I'm aware that everyone's taken note that the Celtics look like they've they've kind of figured something out. But also just the fact that Westbrook somehow has averaged a triple double for a season again, which is is nearly impossible. So I think. Kyrie had an unbelievable season and one of his best seasons. And I was expecting to actually talk about that when we got to third team between him and a couple other guards. But um, I think just because I'm so critical of him and I've seen on a game by game basis that a lot of the time when the Celtics really needed something, his it, it was kind of an attitude thing as well. It, it's funny because like the off court stuff was the was the storyline. But when you watch him off the court, he looked kind of bored. And disinterested for a little bit until he got his groove back. So there is there is just a stretch where I was like, as as good as he was, he was kind of just getting his numbers and then and then not doing much more. So um, yeah, <laughs> I guess that's my long winded take on that. A lot of things upset me about the whole triple doubles argument with Russell Westbrook, but one of the things that I think is more surprising in terms of how much it upsets me is that because all we talk about is oh he averaged a triple double. We kind of ignore that he led the league in assists this year by a pretty significant margin. He averaged 10.7 assists per game. Next closest guy was Kyle Lowry at 8.7. I mean, there's one argument, I think, that 
because we talk about it so much as averaging a triple-double, we're completely ignoring the fact that he was the league's leading assist man by quite a significant amount. And a lot of people just say, oh, you know, he's only passing when he knows his teammates are going to make the shot. You know, he's just assist hunting with his passes. I watched Rajon Rondo for a year in Sacramento. That is assist hunting. What Russell Westbrook does is not assist hunting. And he still led the league by quite a bit. So I think that because we view him in the context of the triple-double so much in particular, we really tend to gloss over the fact that he is an incredible passing talent. It's worth noting that you can't assist Hunt on a team that can't shoot. Yeah, but that that inability to shoot also is him in a big margin. He is one of the worst shooters in the league this year. And there are times where people were sagging off of him like he was Tony Allen. And just how bad of a shooting year he had, I thought was a real indictment on his overall year. Yeah, I'm just saying, like, when he's when he's driving and kicking, obviously sometimes it's Paul George and we know that he's good, but the rest of the time it's, like, Terrence Ferguson, Alex Sabrinas. I don't think he shared a lot of time with Schroeder, but, you know, that guy's kind of on and off. And Patrick Patterson, who's kind of vanished into thin air, so it just seems really hard to stat pad that. So the forward slots, I had Paul George and Kawhi. Tyler, you had Paul George and Kawhi. And Jeremy, you had Kevin Durant and Blake Griffin, who is someone that I ended up having on my third team. But I do think it's interesting that you put Griffin ahead of Kawhi for that slot. Why is that? What are your thoughts on Griffin over Kawhi for that second team spot? So I, I tried to be consistent with this one thing, and there was a part earlier where I actually missed it when you're talking about Embiid and Jokic, which is when players miss a lot of games, I, I, I kind of take off a lot of points for that. And Kawhi, off the top of my head, I think played 60 games. I'm going to type Blake Griffin in super quick here. I think he played most of their games, which is kind of not always what you expect out of a Blake Griffin. He played 75 games, which is the most since 2013-14. So again, like I said, at some point, I think that I, I really value sustained production. So Griffin was good all year. Is is basically his best scoring year ever. He's added the three-point shot. He's He's been taking three-pointers for a while. It just feels like he's really added the three-point shot. He's got a little bit of a step back. And yeah, part of it has to do with games played, but there's also part of me that thinks the Pistons should be terrible, and they're not. I think Drummond is massively overrated, and I, I also think... Griffin is super underrated. So I think he, he really deserves it this year. Tyler, your thoughts on Kawhi since you had him on the second team? It was just good to see kind of Kawhi healthy, I guess, this year. Um, just his, his overall game is just really impressive. I, I don't hate the Blake um, the, the Blake pick. I had him on my third team as well. Um, and I was close to second team. But just the overall talent level and production for Kawhi and how good he's made that team. I, I just gave him the edge over that because of his all-around game, and, and he's just he's still incredible. The thing for me with Kawhi is that I really did think about the games played argument, and as we'll see when we get to my third team, I sort of decided a couple of years ago that my cutoff for this sort of thing would be if you played fewer than 50 games, I wasn't even going to consider you. If you played between 50 and 60 games, you had to make a really good case that you should be in there over someone else. And then once you hit the 60-game threshold, at that point, it's like, okay, you basically played three quarters of the season. If you played well enough, I'm perfectly happy to put you on that all-NBA team. 
even if maybe someone like Griffin played slightly more games. I just think that Kawhi's impact in 60 games just ever so slightly superseded Griffin's impact in 75 games. And yes, the Pistons don't really have all that much outside of Griffin, but Andre Drummond really did turn it on the second half of the season, and they still only barely managed to squeak into the eighth seed. So for me, that sort of leveled the playing field between him and Kawhi enough for me to put Kawhi there instead. But at the center slot, basically we just have the guy that we didn't have on the first team. So Jeremy and I both have Joel Embiid as our center, and Tyler had Nikola Jokic. So Tyler, for you, was it just sort of a defensive thing where you put Embiid over Jokic for that top slot? So so I have a pretty similar kind of threshold with the games played as you just described. Um, But Jokic was mostly the defensive end, the lack thereof. And these last couple of weeks, he's kind of been weird and moody on the court, I guess you could say. Um, Teams are just getting a lot more physical with him and he does not like it and is pretty vocal to the refs about it um so just i don't know it's kind of nitpicking here i kind of explained why i I had him beat over him but just his demeanor these last couple weeks his inability to kind of play through the physicality um and just the 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 lack of defense just slid him to the second team by just a hair and now on to the third team where we have a much wider range of disagreements so Really, the only thing that any of us agree on is that Tyler and I both have Blake Griffin as third-team forwards. Tyler and I both have Rigo Bear as third-team centers. And other than that, it's a mishmash. But Tyler, I wanted to talk about your third-team guards because they were quite different from both Jeremy's and mine. You had Bradley Beal and Kemba Walker as your third-team guards and did not have Russell Westbrook on any of your All-NBA teams when both Jeremy and I had him second team. So what was your thought process going through the guards for this third team? So I feel almost a little dirty and like I did something wrong here, but uh, because I, I think winning matters and should matter, but just the mess of a team that Beal and Kemba were on and the production and you know wins they were responsible for, I thought was just so great that they they kind of deserved um a spot here i just I, I just really struggled with westbrook's season this year with his inability to shoot and his lack of efficiency just really bothered me for some reason this year and maybe it was paul george's massive jump that he made um that in my mind just kind of diminished westbrook whether that's fair or not you know it, it might not be but the seasons that beal and kemba produced were I thought just incredible I mean how many how many other players can you name on Kemba's team I I I think you'd be pretty surprised at who their second leading scorer is and um just the Wizards are an absolute mess we've covered them you know unfortunately too much uh as an NBA community and just how Beal was able to perform at a really high level even with the wall injury and just kind of make them a better team almost, despite a really ugly roster, I thought was really impressive. I really struggled with the sixth guard slot. I was pretty clear on who I thought my top five were. Obviously, Tyler, you and I disagree about whether Westbrook belongs in that top five. 
But then for me, I ended up going with Bradley Beal over Kemba Walker. And really most of that, I think, was just on the defensive end. Beal is an above average defender. I wouldn't quite say elite defender, but he's a very good, solid defender. And Kemba Walker just isn't. And ultimately, they both had similar roles as basically the entirety of a non-Eastern Conference playoff team. And Kemba's team got a whole heck of a lot closer than Bradley Beal's team did. And Beal at least had John Wall for some of the season. But I really viewed them as having very similar years, except that Beal was just better on the defensive end of the floor. Yeah, and that that's fair. But just the fact that Jeremy Lamb is the Hornets' second leading scorer, I think is appalling. And Bradley Beal had to deal with the loss of John Wall after about 30 games and trading away Otto Porter. Um, I, I just thought both what what both those guys did was just really impressive overall. When I when I made my list, I thought I was gonna have to like really sell you guys on Kyrie. So that's kind of what my notes are. <laughs> it, it was kind of the deal where like you can just pick your poison with any stat, and Kyrie had a better season than than Kemba and Beal. Unless you're one of those, you know, you look at Kemba scoring sixty and you wow. But Kemba played all eighty two games. I love that. Almost led a terrible team to the playoffs. I love that. Went to UConn. Love that. And um, ju- I-, I just love having like a, like a really take the game over type of player. To me, that's like the highest echelon of basketball player. The guy who you just give him the ball and he takes over the game. So, And I, I also want to add that Kyrie's defensive stats are actually kind of good. He's super active. He understands all the the switching and help defense and all that fun stuff. He has a lot of steals, tries to body up on guys. And uh, he, he it like, sure, having Horford and Smart in a lineup can kind of mask anyone, but he, he actually kind of belongs on a decent, like, defensive lineup. He really belongs there. So defense kind of gets drowned out sometimes in these awards where you have to turn to stats. I think a lot of defensive stats are very deceptive. When I was doing my research, I was noticing that there's a lot of players with good defensive rating but poor points per possession and then you look at box plus minus and it's like something else so it's kind of hard to figure out but he's a good defender just by watching him so between him and walker and beal Kyrie definitively better season i just like Campbell more than beal because he can take games over both of you had lamarcus aldridge on your third team tyler you had him as a forward jeremy you had him as a center he was i think the last cut for me I really struggled to decide between him and Rudy Gobert at center. I didn't feel quite right putting him in as a forward just because he played so much more at center this year than he did at power forward, even though that was sort of his more traditional position. But since both of you ended up with Aldridge on your teams and I didn't, what sort of tipped you over the edge with putting him on that third team? Start with you, Tyler. Yes, I, I kind of cheated and moved him to power forward. Um, and only reason I did that was because of the forward class I thought was pretty weak for for, or for this year. Um, I thought about trying to cheat and move Townsend, but his lack of defense um, and just kind of how the end of the season didn't really matter. Um, I, I couldn't let my homerism take over, and I, I just couldn't pull myself to do it. But Aldridge was just kind of the rock for um, for the Spurs this year. I and mean, he's been really good offensively. He's been efficient. And just 
really, really consistent. And I, I, I think he deserves acknowledgement and um, praise for that. And everyone counted the Spurs out, you know, at the beginning of the season and then about every benchmark throughout the season everyone just kind of assumed that they weren't going to make the playoffs. And you guys kind of touched on that earlier with, or in the other podcast with um, talking about pop, but Aldridge was the guy who was kind of leading them on the, on the court. And I, I think he deserves um, a lot of respect for, for doing that. Yeah. I wanted to put him at forward too, but number one, like you said, it was hard to find forwards. And number two, he actually kind of played a ton of minutes at center this year. So it was, it was hard to move him from there. And then, yeah, just inexplicably, making the Spurs good still doesn't quite make sense to me that they're good. And I just kind of like that late, late in his career, having a great season, he's 33 years old. I give a lot of credit to the adversity of, you know, you play through this weird Kawhi Leonard sits out season. Now your teammates with DeRozan, there's no spacing, not a ton of lockdown defender type guys. And then, and then still the, the, the roster just works. And, you know, a lot of that goes through Aldridge. And there was a part of me that felt like I should give Towns more consideration, but I, I kind of just don't like watching Towns play that much, to be honest. I know it's not like a, a popular opinion, but Towns is a guy that disappears in games more than people acknowledge, in my opinion. And I, and I do think Minnesota should be at least a little bit better. So that, I think the, the team success gives Aldridge a clear edge. All right, let's talk about the elephant in the room. Neither of you had LeBron James on any of your all-NBA teams. I had him as my second, third-team forward. And we've discussed a few of these things already. A huge part of this was the fact that there really wasn't all that much competition for those forward slots. And look, LeBron has had the worst year of his career in a very long time. He only played 55 games. He was heavily involved in all of the Anthony Davis drama. But for me, I look at that Lakers team and it is unfair to say that LeBron deserves none of the blame. It's unfair to say that Luke Walton deserves none of the blame. But 95% of the blame for this terrible Lakers season has to go with the completely unacceptably stupid things that Magic Johnson and Rob Palenka did to this team during the offseason, there was a very, very clear model over the course of the last 15 years of what worked in terms of surrounding LeBron James with certain types of players and what didn't work. And they pivoted so hard in the direction of something that was abundantly clearly not going to work to basically every single person who had ever seen LeBron James play before. And yes, the Lakers had an incredibly disappointing season. Yes, LeBron played a pretty major part in that. Yes, he did miss a significant number of games, but he still had a spectacular season, still 27, 8, and 8. And almost all of the fault for the Lakers' miserable season goes to Magic Johnson and Rob Palenka. And even though LeBron did play a role in it, it wasn't enough for me to leave him off the all-NBA teams, especially given the relatively weak crop of forwards that we had to deal with this season. So I agree that the front office was an absolute abomination this year and just why they thought that roster would make sense, I will never understand. But, and I, I don't know, I, I feel like I've offended the basketball gods and they're going to smite me in some way, but the combination of the games missed, the complete lack of even pretending to play defense, the locker room issues, the trade debacle the you know i get 
just all of it adding up, just I, I couldn't do it. I, I get that he's the second best player of all time. I understand his box score stats are still impressive and he continues to put up like 27, 8, and 8 every game. But he just didn't look like he cared. He didn't even bother trying to even pretend that defense was a thing. Um, and, you know, he missed 30 or close to 30 games this year. And I, I, I just couldn't do it. It feels wrong. It feels gross. But it at the same time, it just it feels almost right to just not reward him for a pretty appalling year that if someone else, if his name wasn't LeBron James, I, I don't think that this would even be a discussion. Jeremy, you had Tobias Harris over LeBron James for that third forward spot, and you put a question mark after it. Was <laughs> it just because you felt too gross to put LeBron James on that team as a Celtics fan, or what were your thoughts on that particular slot? It's it's a question mark because, honestly, I wanted to give it to, like, Doncic, but I thought that might be too much of, like, a hot take thing to just see a rookie be really good for one year and decide he's third team. But So... I guess first thing, part of leaving LeBron off is number one, he played 55 games, which to me is is pretty well into like the too few category. And then I, I so agree on the defense that there would be these plays where you could see a pass get thrown and you could see LeBron acknowledging that that pass is thrown and he's in a position to make a play on it. And then instead of moving his feet at all, he puts his arms out and he throws his arms at Kyle Kuzma and he's like, what are you doing? And then Kuzma's like, what are you doing? You're right there. It's just like, but, and this is all before like a player catches the pass. The play's not even over. And guys are pointing fingers. Why are you there? Why aren't you here? It's like, just, just extend, literally just extend your arm. Foul the guy. Who cares? So it's not even bad defense. And to me, it's worse than just not playing defense because he would, he would just be acknowledging very like with, with a lot of, I don't know, he's animated. He's like, why? Why are you not doing things? It's like, why? Why are you not doing things? You're standing right there. Even if it's not your guy to go get, you're still there. So, um, yeah, missing games and then not carrying on defense and then offensively, he's ridiculous, but not totally unprecedented. Three point shooting, not that good. Free throws, not that good. Just crazy at driving and um, and you know, finishing in the paint. Takes a lot of opportunities for himself. Calls on his own number to score. So, you know, credit credit for the offense. It's just not, like, so mind-blowing that it gets him there by itself. Great passer, rebounding stats I don't care about really with anyone. So as far as replacing him, you know, Harris was really good all year. <laughs> There's not a lot of guys to fill that spot. And uh, it just felt too weird to put a rookie there. And it also felt weird to put Harris because there's this disease when you get traded to Philly that you can't shoot threes anymore. Him and Butler just, like, can't shoot threes anymore. Uh, Embiid's three-point shooting was good for a while, and now it's gone. Fultz gets drafted by them and can't shoot anymore. I don't know what's going on in Philly. But um, so between him and Doncic, there's also Gallinari, which I just also didn't quite feel right about. So, yeah, it it could just go to anyone. So I picked Harris because I thought he was really good this year. All right, moving on to the all-rookie teams. And bear in mind for these that these are not position-locked, so it's basically just the 10 best rookies ordered one through 10 and six through 10 is your second team. One through five is your first team. So we agreed on Luca, Trey Young and Deandre Ayton as the three top candidates for rookie of the year. We also all had Jaron Jackson jr. On that all rookie first team. And then 
Tyler, you had Shea Gilgis Alexander on your first team, and both Jeremy and I had Marvin Bagley in that slot, which makes me very happy that Jeremy had him there, so I didn't feel like a complete homer for putting Marvin Bagley on the first team. But <laughs> Tyler, what are your thoughts on the season Gilgis Alexander had? I thought he was awesome this year. Um, he was, he played starting point guard for a playoff team, and I think that really matters. I Bagley was really close for me, but just Shea's overall you know work and just being able to be that starter all year for a playoff team I think is really impressive and should give him the edge uh but Bagley was had a great year um he was a lot better than I expected and I thought he was used perfectly as kind of that rim runner and he came on really strong in the middle and end of the year here uh, before that injury but just how Shea was able to take over that starting point guard role never really give it up to anyone and kind of help lead I guess not really but um help lead as a starting point guard uh, the Clippers to the playoffs I think is really really impressive Jeremy your thoughts on Bagley yeah it was um there were all these stats early on that that just kind of made it look like I couldn't quite look away because there's a lot of people posting like okay sure maybe he doesn't the the counting stats aren't great but he's he's getting like these you know, a lot of like 17 minute games where he's putting up like 10 and seven or whatever it is. And then people project it out to per 36 and I hate per 36, but the point being he, he was, he was quietly actually doing a lot of good things early and then they just gave him more minutes and he was good. So that, that that's really it. I think it was kind of a top heavy draft. So you have those rookie of the year candidates, right? And then you just have a handful of guys that were, that were like good. And then that's kind of it. So kind of, kind of an easy pick for me. So I don't think we really had that strong of a disagreement in terms of Gilgis Alexander, just because both Jeremy and I had him as the first name that we put down on our second team. But since there's a little more disagreement on these, let's run through those second teams now. So I had Shea, Landry Shamit, Mitchell Robinson, Colin Sexton, and Rodion Skurutz. Tyler had Marvin Bagley, Colin Sexton, Robinson, Landry Shamit, and Josh Okogie. And then Jeremy, you had Gilgis Alexander, Colin Sexton, Shamit, Kuritz, and Mitchell Robinson. So the same team as me. But since this was the difference that we had, and also because he's someone that I came very close to putting on one of my teams, Tyler, what were your thoughts on the rookie year that Josh Okogie had in Minnesota? So I suppressed my homerism with leaving Towns off, but I, I just couldn't do it with Okogie. This kid is so much fun to watch. and as a late first round pick just how good he's been has been awesome for the Timberwolves I get that he's been pretty atrocious from with his three-point shooting but we're just going to forget about that right now and just talk about the good things the beginning of the season he had to deal with Tom Thibodeau starting him and then not playing him for two weeks and then playing him for five minutes and then starting him and never really having any sense of role or what his minute load would be. And then, but regardless of that, he always came out and played super hard. And then once Thibodeau got fired, Okogis be, kind of became the starter in a lot of games, a lot of that due to injury, but he was awesome on the defensive end. He plays with a ton of energy and he'll slam it on anyone. He's just a lot of fun to watch. And if, if, you don't watch him. You need to watch more of him. Um, don't watch him shoot because that 
that's kind of painful. But watching him do everything else on the floor, um, whether it's cutting and dunking or playing defense, is has been really impressive. So just what he was able to do, I guess mostly on the defensive end of the floor, and despite all of the drama and coaching turnover and lack of clear role this year, I think has been really impressive and deserves a ton of praise. I want to talk about Colin Sexton next because I really strongly considered leaving him off of the all-rookie teams entirely. First of all, because the only defender in basketball who was worse than Sexton this year was Trey Young. And second of all, because Sexton was just abysmal for the first half of the season. But since the All-Star break, he's really turned it on and he's become a different player almost. He's given up a lot of the terrible mid-range shots that kind of defined his season earlier in the year. And he has developed quite a bit as a playmaker over the course of the year. And I guess I'm putting him on the second team just because I think that even though he was so bad the first half of the year and was so bad throughout the year on the defensive end of the floor, he really turned it on enough over the past month and a half of the season to convince me that he can sneak his way onto the second team. But I was surprised at how bad I felt about it. And since both of you had him a little bit higher, I think, than I did, what were your thoughts on Colin Sexton? Let's start with you, Jeremy. To be honest with you, I know I already said this, but like this rookie class just feels super top-heavy. There's a lot of players who seem pretty good, and there's there's no one really to put over them. If if my second team went to six, I would have had a Kogi six, so I really have no issue with, with that pick on there. Um, and then, you know, it just comes down to Sexton, down the stretch, just being legitimately good offensively even if again we know his defense isn't good that happens with small guards I'm a little biased because the Celtics had Isaiah and there was ways to to hide him so in my mind it's not like insurmountable to have a poor defensive guard and still have things work out when when you're Cleveland right now and you don't really have other good players then that's that's kind of what you have to live with so um just offensively there's such a big gap between him and other players that I think he makes second team and then rounding that out Kurtz, I put him on the second team. Ultimately, it was a bit of a tough decision just because he tailed off a little bit towards the end of the year, but ultimately he started more than half of a playoff team's games, and that is more than enough in my mind to make it onto the second team. Then with Mitchell Robinson, he might have been the most surprising rookie just because nobody had any idea what he was going to be in the NBA after basically sitting out last season, and He's been almost all of the best possible things that people could have expected from him. And I mean, until Kevin Durant signs there in a couple months, the Knicks are going to need all the hope they can get. So credit to him. And then Landry Shamit, three-point specialist, sure, but really, really good three-point specialist. And it's really clear watching him that he basically must have just walked up to J.J. Redick on day one of training camp and been like, teach me everything you know, Yoda. And it's worked out pretty well for him so far, so props to him as well. Yeah, I think Shamit is actually more than just a shooter, too. Um, in college, he he played a lot of point guard, and I, I think he, he still brings a lot of that to his game. But h- how well he's played um, on two different teams in two different conferences this year has been really promising. Um, Mitchell Robinson was absolutely awesome as a rim protector this year, and you know, at, you you mentioned that no one really knew what he could be uh, or what he would be, but um, the the flashes of what he could be were there. So it's really really cool to see him 
performing to those and kind of just being a consistent um, and really encouraging defender. All right, let's move on to our final segment of this marathon podcast and talk about the all defensive teams. And we had a bit more agreement here than I thought we would, but certainly we did have some disagreements that will be interesting to discuss. So let's start on the all defensive teams with the guards. All three of us had True Holiday as a first team all defense guard. Not particularly surprising. And then really the debate from there seems to be about Marcus Smart. Both of you had him on your first team. I have absolutely no real strong disagreement with that. I had Marcus Smart on my second team. He's an incredible defender, but I ended up going with Eric Bledsoe instead as my other first team defensive guard. But seeing as I'm the outlier here, I just wanted to go into what I thought about Bledsoe. He was near the top of the league in deflections. He just locked up opposing point guards night after night after night after night. And I think he benefited quite a bit from having Giannis on the court with him and from having Brooke Lopez as a rim protector dropping back, which allowed Bledsoe to be a lot more aggressive on the defensive end of the floor. But you can make a similar, maybe not as strong of an argument, but a similar argument for Marcus Smart in that he had Al Horford alongside him as well to clean up a lot of his mistakes. Ultimately, I think both Bledsoe and Smart are very deserving, but Bledsoe just played on a better defensive team, and he really impressed me, I think, night to night, just ever so slightly more than Marcus Smart did. But seeing as I'm the outlier here, let's hear some arguments against me. So, Jeremy, what are your thoughts on what I'm assuming is your favorite player in basketball? <laughs> he is my favorite player. Um Smart had just such an unbelievable defensive season. And I just love the fact that the Celtics have a guard that can guide or <laughs> a guard that can guard uh, all five positions. And he, he, he has like such like a unique approach to getting steals sometimes. A lot of steals are just kind of bad passes where a player sees it coming. Smart does this thing where he gets in this low crouching position, kind of angled towards one side of the player and you see the pass go up and then he jumps and reaches around and knocks the ball away over their shoulder. He's also the only guy in the league that I ever see just simply walk up and remove the ball from a player's hands as opposed to like a throwing your, you know, hand as like trying to strip the ball. He just walks up and grabs it. And I think more players should try it. Countless, countless, countless games where smart gets switched onto a forward or a center and they immediately think they can post him up. And they can't post him up. They never score on him. I don't have the stat in front of me right now. But he, he he's just like, he's he's such a good post defender for a guard. And so invaluable to a team that's been good on defense every year. He hasn't really gotten a ton of first team or second team votes. He really just does everything. So I know, I know it comes off as a little bit vague. But he guards every position. Steals. Not so much of a shot blocker because he's not like a, a leaper like Dwayne Wade is. Um, he does it all, man. He's he's incredible. Yeah, I, I just gave Smart the slight edge over Bledsoe, mostly because I well, for one, Smart is terrifying, and I'd hate to go up against him. And he just plays incredibly hard at a really high level every night. He's always bringing it, and he's just kind of like brings the def defensive identity for that team. I think he's just kind of the face of that defense, and 
doesn't matter who he gets switched on to, he's going to guard him at a high level. Uh, it was a really impressive year for Bledsoe, but Smart's just consistency and kind of like the defensive culture that he that that he brings to the team just gave him the the slight edge for me. In terms of the rest of our all defensive first team, we all three of us agreed. Forwards Paul George and Giannis, and center Rudy Gobert. We've talked about all three of them quite a lot already, so. Let's just move on to the second team. So I had Marcus Smart as one of my guards since he wasn't on the first team. And then I had Patrick Beverly, Pascal Siakam, Paul Millsap, and Joel Embiid as my center. So let's start with center, actually, and then work our way up. Both Tyler and I had Joel Embiid as the center. And Jeremy, you had Miles Turner there. I'm assuming a lot of this comes down to games played, but why don't you elaborate a little bit more on Miles Turner in that center slot for second team all defensive? I don't remember if I said it on this pod or the last one, but the the Sixers just collectively late in games make a lot of really big mistakes. And guys like Embiid get exploited a lot. Again, I don't know if it's, I, I mean, I do know it's part of it is just endurance. Part of it is I think he loses his cool. And he's he's kind of slow and easy to to, you know, kind of manipulate the defense to exploit him. Turner, unbelievable shot blocker this year, plays for a team that overachieved a lot. And I think Indiana was like a top five defensive team. Don't quote me on that. And um, just he's kind of the modern mobile. He could be a power forward. He can be a center. He's quick. He's just a really smart player. I like the shot blocking. And um, I, I, I just see with, you know, again, this part of the last part, there's kind of a lot of like, centers who get stuck in the paint and it's easy to exploit and i think turner's just good everywhere so he uh little again slight very slight edge but he was good all year so i'll take turner i like the miles turner pick um i i think he's done a really good job of becoming more than just a shot blocker this year like he has in the past his block numbers have um always been pretty good but he's been like a bad defender i guess and this year um Nate McMillan has done a really good job of helping him become an actual good defender. Um, I he it was close for me, and I I was even thinking about putting him on defensive player of the year ballot. Um, but what kind of gave Embiid the edge? Um, I get I get that he didn't play as many games, but Turner's role I guess was lesser than Embiid's was, and and Turner only played like twenty eight minutes a game. So Embiid's just kind of overall role and bringing that defensive identity to the Sixers um, gave him the edge. When he leaves the floor, they become a much worse defensive team. And when uh, Miles Turner switches with Sabonis, uh, there's some drop-off, but nothing as drastic as when Embiid gets switched out. I just want to add super quick because I closed the tab by accident. Uh, Indiana's third defensive rating. So let's now talk about the forwards. And all three of us had Pascal Siakam as one of our second team forwards. It's interesting that none of us went with Kawhi, but that does make sense. I mean, Kawhi did not have the kind of defensive year that he usually does. He also missed a lot of time, as we've talked about in a number of previous sections. But I do want to talk about the other forward spot because... Both of you had P.J. Tucker there, and I did not. So, Tyler, let's start with you. Why did you have P.J. Tucker as your second-team all-defensive forward, other than, obviously, Pascal Siakam? Uh, because he's terrifying. Um, he, he's, he's just 
a mean man on defense. He guards everyone at a really high level. Um, I f- feel like I've brought this up almost too much with bringing kind of the defensive identity to a team, but that's him. I mean, I, Capella's a, a, a good rim protector, but what P.J. Tucker does and the, the, the load he carries on the defensive end is extremely important for that team where he just kind of picks up the mistakes of 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 everyone else around him and makes up for when Chris Paul or James Harden gamble on a, on a pass or something and go for a steal and he you can just switch him on to to anyone and I just I think he's one of the the best and most underrated uh overall defenders in the league. I had Paul Millsap instead of PJ Tucker for that other forward spot on the second all defensive team. And my argument for that is pretty simple. In 2017-18, so last season, the Nuggets finished 46 and 36. They were the ninth seed. And per basketball reference, they ranked 25th out of 30 teams in terms of defensive rating. Paul Millsap also missed most of the season, only played 38 games, and wasn't really fully himself for most of that season. Now, let's look at the 2018-2019 Nuggets who were 10th in the league in defensive rating per basketball reference. They ended up as the second seed in the Western Conference. And surprise, surprise, Paul Millsap played 70 games. He makes such a difference to that team on the defensive end of the floor. He doesn't fully cover up for Nikola Jokic. No one really can. But he is always in the right place at the right time. He's got some of the quickest hands in basketball He knows where he's supposed to be. He knows where his teammates are supposed to be and is not shy about sending his teammates to where they're supposed to be. And ultimately, the reason that the Nuggets made the jump this year is not because of their offense, because their offense was good both years. The real difference has been that their defense has been so much better this season. And it's pretty clear in my mind that Paul Millsap is almost all of the reason behind that defensive jump. I guess my only rebuttal is... It's a pretty clear bias on my end. I just think um I think PJ Tucker is just a larger Marcus Smart. Super strong for his size, can switch on anybody, super high basketball IQ, and it's a unique kind of um he, he can kind of take over a game even though you don't really realize it where he'll he'll hit a three, he'll get the stop, he'll make the pass on the other hand, and then he'll he'll take a charge. And it's just like every play for the end of a game will have his fingerprints on it. So it's kind of like a unique kind of late game dominance that I think he brings and smart brings. So obviously I think smart's better, but that's why I like Tucker. All right. And wrapping up with the last spots on the second team. So in terms of guards, it was basically just, I had Marcus smart and you guys had Eric Bledsoe. It was the person that you didn't put on your first team as your guard. And then both of you had Danny green as your second, second team guard I have no problem with that, but I ended up going with Patrick Beverly instead. I think that a huge part of the reason why Lou Williams is able to have the success that he's had is that he gets to play with an absolute defensive dog pretty much all of the time in Beverly. And Beverly really does help round out that Clippers guard rotation that doesn't really have much in the way of defense other than him, but he's a lockdown guy. He gets in your face. He pisses off pretty much everybody and other than a few questionable diving at knees incidents, it's really hard not to like the kind of effort that he plays with. And it shows up, especially on the defensive end. And ultimately, that's why I went with him over Danny Green. 
Beverly's definitely an absolute pest and nuisance to deal with on defense. Um, I, I just went with Danny Green because of the versatility on with who he can guard, and he always guards them at a high level. Um, he's kind of a quiet defender, but he's also one of, if like not the best transition defenders in the league. Um, and and that's that that's what bumped him up for me is just um how how good he is in transition and just he can guard a lot more guys effectively on uh, on the court yeah i've noticed danny green has this advantage of just being on a good team all the time which i think sways me a little more they're not good because he has them but he 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 certainly contributes and so i bring up the good team just because he there's just a lot of big defensive plays and big moments and the other thing i was going to bring up was the the transition defense i just think that matters a lot the way the the nba is trended we kind of tunnel vision and all the threes but um the transition defense is super important these days. So I like both of those things. And yeah, that's, that's about it. All right. Anything else before we wrap up? I don't think so. Just that these are hard, man. There's just a lot. What, what, yeah, actually, there was one thing I wanted to just, it, it's a quick thing, which is when <laughs> I felt obligated to leave LeBron and, and Anthony Davis off because they, it was like, you know, Firefest NBA edition. And they didn't play a lot of games. It felt like they both punted a season. So when two key players are out like that, it kind of forces you to make some weird picks and then maybe switch guys around from first team and second team, just based on, or between second and third team, based on kind of weird circumstances. Tyler, anything to add? No, I, I think that kind of covers it. Um, it's crazy. There are a lot of really good players in the NBA who would have thought, <laughs> um, but yeah, the, 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 there were a lot of really tough picks and like fine lines you kind of had to draw. And um I, I kind of found, found myself contradicting myself um, sometimes with games played versus wit, you know team success and stuff like that. So just it, it's a lot harder than than you would really think, um, especially with how deep the guards were and how thin the, uh, the the forward market I guess was for for this year's options. All right. Well, they are Tyler Metcalf and Jeremy Stevens. You can find Tyler on Twitter at tmetcalf11. You can find Jeremy on Twitter at taco underscore h-a-u-s. And of course, you can find both of their work on the hashtag basketball website, where you can find my written work as well. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. And if you have any feedback, feel free to reach out to me via Twitter nba johnson or via email nickaj.nba at gmail.com and as always thanks so much for listening